0: Thank <laughs> Well, I hear there's speculation about my favorite Christmas cookies, and in fact, my favorite Christmas pastry is not a cookie at all. It is an ancestral sort of pastry that that um, it's kind of heavy. It's called a Linzer torte. You got a quarter pound of hazelnut or almond, fine ground. Uh, a pound of butter, a pound of flour, and a pound of brown sugar. And I think we used it as ballast on the ship coming over, but that was Christmas for us, Linzer Torts. <laughs> the my voice might have just said, does it come with Lipitor? No, it didn't even come with antacids, but oh boy, it was good. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well, yeah, Linzendorten, we didn't call it Linzendorten, it was Linzendorten, which is a sort of low German way of saying that, but my, my German gets lower and lower by the year, but I, that's not what we're here for, to discuss Christmas pastries, though I do like the subject. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we came, you're supposed to make them with raspberry preserves, but we found out when we came over that Welch's grape jelly did just as well. But let's get our minds out of the kitchen and open the big book on the coffee table. (laughs) Well, our first reading today is one of those prophetic readings from Isaiah, in which it's all going to be good. The desert and the parched land will exult; the steppe will rejoice and bloom. The steppe, for those who don't know what a steppe is, it's kind of a big prairie. Uh, the steps are uh, a treeless sea of grass and. They ain't got a lot of them in Russia. Okay. They'll bloom with abundant flowers. The glory of Lebanon will be given to them. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. And uh, those were locations, not Candy and a girl named Sharon. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Uh, they will see the glory of God. It's just this wonderful, uh, I don't know how to put it. It's all going to be good. Uh, there's a... Uh, a lot of uh, sayings of Jesus that are not biblical, but some of them may be authentic. And I, there's one uh, saying I remember: "In that day, uh, uh, each vine will have a thousand clusters of grape; each cluster is a thousand, uh, a thousand grapes." And this, this, this hyperbolic, this exaggerated—it's going to be better than you think. You know, people always ask me things like, "Will I know my loved ones in heaven?" "Will you know your loved ones in heaven?" You'll know them a lot better than you know them here. I mean, th- this world. I think this kind of prophecy is 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 trying to say this world and the beauty of this world. That just hints about about the beauty of 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 what is to come. And so, be strong and fear not. Here comes your God. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. Um, uh, Oh good grief! Um, I'm always I should have looked that up. I'm looking at a word here, and I I really should. Oh good grief! Good grief! I should have looked it up. A good grief is right. Oh good grief is well. Let's just move on instead of uh, my feeble attempts to. to look up the word, I'll look it up in the break. All right, uh, he comes to save you, and the eyes will then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared, the lame man will leap like a stag, the tongue of the mute will sing. You know the great prophetic uh, utterances uh, of the um, um, of of these prophecies. Jesus fulfilled them symbolically. His miracles in his miracles, the lame walked and the deaf heard and the mute spoke that that this was kind of a hint of, of what was to come now I don't know if you realize this but I'm sure I've said it many times there is um, uh, in 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 Jewish thinking there are two messiahs uh, there is the Messiah the suffering servant who is the um, uh, um, he He's the, he prepares the way for the glorious son of David at the end of time. Uh, that, that's the two messiahs. We, you know, I don't know if you've ever wondered about, well, you know, Jesus uh, came and he's going to return. Uh, that seems kind of lame. Why did he just stick around? Well, because this is something that, that the, uh, the Jews uh, expected. They expected two messiahs. And the idea of the Messiah, son of Joseph, uh, that's what the first Messiah is, coming to prepare the way for the second Messiah who comes at the end of time, uh, King David, uh, or the, the glorious son of David. Well, so this this Messiah kind of comes in, in, uh, in sort of uh, abbreviated form. And we... Receive him, and so we enter into the Messianic kingdom ahead of time. Uh, It's a little complicated, (laughs) as many things in life. But there, there is um, um, the promise that that in 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 Jesus, the suffering servant, there's the promise of something glorious to come, and that's what's going on here. This is the glorious, uh, the time of the glorious Messiah. But we have it. Kind of in microcosm, in in just a little a little hint. Um, I think I shared with you last week about the um, uh, this false Messiah who appeared late 1600s. I think it was or no, it was early 1600s. Uh, the uh, um, Shabbatai Zvi and one of his devotees. Uh, ran into his rabbi and said, Rabbi, the Messiah has come. And um, uh, the rabbi goes to the window, throws open the shutters, and nothing has changed. That one of the great, he says, nothing has changed. The Messiah couldn't have come. Nothing has changed. Well, the, uh, um, the messianic expectations were that, that one of them, would, the Messiah would bring world peace. Well, Jesus didn't bring world peace. In fact, he said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, what's about this? I thought the Messiah was supposed to bring peace. Well, Jesus fulfills the messianic expectations in seminal form and in seed form when he says at the Last Supper, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives peace. You see, we're expecting that, that this is going to happen. God's got to do it our way. And it's got to look like what we expect it to look like. Well, not as the world gives peace. Do I give my peace to you? Jesus said. And we repeat that in the mass that that the believer can enter into this glorious messianic age by entering into relationship with Christ. So uh, um, I think that's an important thing to to understand, that that uh, when we enter into the Messiah to the degree that we enter into the Messiah the suffering servant the son of Joseph to that degree <laughs> we enter also into the the glorious era of the son of David so uh, there you go well let's let's continue I, what I really want to talk about in this reading very interesting uh, a highway will be there called the Holy way um, no one no one unclean may pass over it nor fools go astray, it. that fascinates me. No one unclean may pass over it. That that idea of unclean, uh, the word really means uh, someone who is is uh, polluted. Uh, that they are are not they are ritually unclean or morally unclean. Uh, they're not acceptable to God. And and this idea of 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 kosher. Kosher is only mentioned once in. The, the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. I think in the book of Esther, that word is used once. But what you have in the rest of scripture is what is clean and unclean. And what is unclean is, is that which makes you incapable of entry into relationship to God in prayer. You couldn't go up to the temple. You couldn't participate in the religious life of the people because there was an uncleanness about you that that um, you had... You had sullied your soul in some way. And there were physical things that could do it that we wouldn't even think of. You know, touching, for instance, uh, a dead body would make you unclean. Uh, um, A dead mouse would make a... uh, If a dead mouse fell in a bowl, the bowl was unclean. Of course, we might agree with that. But this idea of uncleanness, it means not fit for worship, not fit, uh, unable to enter into worship. So on this highway... Uh, someone who's unclean won't be able to walk on it. However, the fool will be. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting thing. The, the word simply means someone who's foolish. Gnosticism is a religion that tried to combine itself or, or tie itself to Christianity. There were Gnostic forms of Christianity. And it's spelled Gnostic. Gnostic. And um, I have struggled with the word Gnostic much of my life. And I've come to the conclusion that Gnostic really means someone who believes you're saved by correct theology. That's Gnosticism, saved by knowledge. And correct, good theology is very important. It helps us draw closer to the Lord, but is, is not in itself salvific. It's the relationship to Christ that's salvific. And um, again, you've heard me say this, uh, uh, we see those who worshiped at the, at the stable of Bethlehem were among the very foolish and the very wise. I mean, now, of course, if you're a shepherd, you have to have degrees in animal husbandry and all this sort of thing. But back then, all you needed was the ability to stay pretty much awake at night. Um, they were not very smart. Uh, Shepherd—it's not a real, it wasn't a real glorious, uh, uh, um, not a real glorious uh, way to make a living. Now, of course, you have to study, and and you know, shepherds nowadays—they might as well be veterinarians. But that's a different era. But those who came to the crib and recognized Christ were the very simple. The very, very wise, the magi, uh, really were were kind of a. Well, you can almost think of them as an international think tank. They, they were uh, a religious order from uh, what is today Persia and Iraq and Iran, uh, Tigris, Euphrates Valley. And any king worth his salt had a magi and staff because they knew everything about everyone. They, they, they collected information and they, they studied the sciences. They were the smartest going. So the very, very well-educated and the very simple could recognize Christ. The Magi went into the palace in Jerusalem, and they realized Herod wasn't a king. He was just a, a thug. And then they went into the, 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 the stable in Bethlehem, if that's where it was. Or I'm not going to get into that controversy either. But they went into where Christ was and saw a poor baby in his mother's arms. And there they recognized true nobility, true true kingship. So the very simple and the very wise, they find Christ in, in his simplicity. It's those of us kind of in the middle who, I read a book and I, I heard a theologian say that this wasn't true or that wasn't true. You know, the middling sort, we're not, we're not able to enter into that wonderful mystery. This amazes me that, that the unclean cannot walk the road, but the fool can. That, that a person who is a simple person can enter into the most profound relationship with Christ we're not saved by theological uh, um, uh, finesse and expertise we're saved by our, our trust in Christ our, our relationship to him so I think that's a beautiful thing so well let's go to the gospel real quickly hold on let me look at the time boy I talk a lot all right um I love this. Uh, Some men brought uh, on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him in in Jesus' presence. Not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the tiles into the middle of the front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, "Your sins are forgiven you." This is really nifty because. I remember uh, at St. Lambert's we had a hall, a wonderful hall. We had, and we would have great lectures there, all that sort of thing. It was a huge hall, but the stairs were. It was almost like climbing a ladder. They say that the first pastor, uh, when he finished this beautiful church with a beautiful hall underneath it, he went down to the hall, looked up the stairs, and said, "What was I thinking?" We finally managed to put an elevator in, but it was. If you if you were had trouble walking. Getting down to the hall was was work. Well, I will never forget a fellow in a wheelchair showed up for one of our lecture series, and and four young, enthused college students picked up the man's wheelchair and and brought him down the stairs. The look of terror on that man's face, I will never forget it. Your faith, when Jesus saw their faith, as for you, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their trust, remember how I translate the word faith. When he saw their trust, this guy was must have been terrified as they were lowering him down through a roof. There was nothing he could do about it. He must have been terrified. The look on his face must have been one of sheer terror, but he still trusted them to do it. And I think that that's an important part of this story, that that, that we look at the circumstances of our life, and they can be terrifying. and, and But still, we look at Jesus, and we trust him. So I think that that is an important thing to to understand that that this trust is salvific. It isn't knowing the facts. It isn't having the correct theology. It isn't being more sophisticated in our in our understanding than others. Though those things help, understanding is very important, and good theology is very important. But it is not in itself salvific. When it enhances our relationship to Christ, then it participates in our salvation. He said, "Your trust." has saved you. So we look at the world around us and a look of terror (laughs) crosses our face. All right, that's all right. Just keep trusting. So uh, I think that one of the most profound prayers of the 20th century taught us by dear St. Faustina, Jesus, I trust in you. And with that said, let us take a break. We'll come back with some letters and the phones will open at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. The Catholic Order of Foresters, the sponsor of our studio line, is hiring today. Several positions available throughout the US. Visit relevantradio.com/forester to learn more about how you can find your vocation with COF, an Illinois life insurance society not licensed in all states. No Jesus on the line. I remember uh, uh, an old gospel song, Jesus on the main line. Tell him what you want. (laughs) All right. Again, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. But let us at the moment go to letters. Okay. Click on my letter thing. Now, here is a learned disquisition for you. This is from Alice. She asks a very pertinent question. Okay, at Mass today, it was mentioned in one of the readings that John the Baptist lived on honey and locusts. There are species uh, from the Fabaceae family, the pea family, called locusts, locust beans. The African bean tree and carob are commonly called locusts. Carob is at least native to the Middle East and produces edible pods, and it actually is a substitute for chocolate, the the carob bean. So that doesn't sound bad, chocolate and honey. And she goes, yeah, chocolate and honey, yeah, yeah. Well, was John the Baptist a vegan or a bug eater? He actually, if he actually ate locust bugs as his protein source, it seems he was not keeping kosher. Bugs aren't kosher, are they? Yet no one complains about his eating locusts, which leads me to believe it was plant, but au contraire, there are kosher locusts. Kosher locusts are varieties of locusts that are permissible for for consumption under the Jewish dietary laws. Most insects, yes, are forbidden, but the rabbis of the Talmud identified eight kosher species of locusts. However, the identity of those species is in dispute. But, yes, there are actual kosher locusts. The Yemenite tradition has the edible locust referred to in the Torah uh, because it resembles the Hebrew letter chet on the underside of the thorax. I mean, do you want to know more about this or not? There are kosher locusts. So, John the Baptist could have eaten locusts instead of carob beans. I think we've said enough about that, haven't we? All right, let's move on to another letter. Oh, see, correct theology. Very helpful, very helpful. Okay, moving along here. All right, this is... Um, uh, um, uh, lately, you've been talking about the role of ushers. I would like to add to the discussion uh, the collection of ties here at our cathedral in St. Paul. They have a box in the back, and you just put your offering in there. I like this system. It has two benefits. The first, it makes tithing not a public spectacle, so you can't get a good or high and mighty feeling about it. Um, and um, also, uh, it's less distracting. Yeah, I don't think that's going to fly. <laughs> we'll keep passing the basket. But, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, now, uh, in, in a Jewish synagogue, they don't have a collection, you subscribe to be a member of the synagogue. We've been doing it this way for a long time. I have a feeling it isn't about to change, but you know. And and I think you know it's interesting that um, some people think it unseemly to be collecting, uh, taking up a collection at a mass, that sort of thing. Well, it's very biblical. There are collections in the in the in the scripture, and um, you know that, that for us giving is not unrelated to the sacrificial nature of the mass. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I sometimes think uh, in agreement with <clears throat> with Jordan from St. Paul, and other times I think, no, it's an integral part of the liturgy. So I'm torn. But there, I just thought I'd mention that. All right, let's see. We got something from an uh, off-air caller. Uh, somebody asked about books that talk about prophetic utterances, uh, referring to Jesus. <clears throat> And apparently you can find it in an Exhaustive Concordance, New Revised Standard Version, Thomas Nelson. I have never read the book, but uh, it might be appropriate. Exhaustive Concordance, New Revised Standard Version from Thomas Nelson. So just just to answer that question, which is a good question. Okay, I got a letter from someone. Oh, dear, I'm going to go into this in some detail. I'm a lifelong practicing Catholic from an anonymous person, but I didn't become serious about my faith until after my marriage 25 years ago. I've read everything I can get my hands on about the Immaculate Conception. But ultimately, I just don't get it. I still attend December 8th Holy Day of Obligation in reference to the Church. However, I'm considering becoming uh, orthodox catechumen over this issue. Well, first of all, what are you going to do when you find something in orthodoxy with which you don't quite agree? Um... You can't pick and choose. Let me talk about the Immaculate Conception again. This is an idea that is implied, certainly, in Scripture. Uh, the angel calls the Blessed Mother, which means one who has already received grace. We don't believe that Mary saved herself. We don't believe that our Blessed Mother didn't need salvation. St. John uh, Paul the Great uh, said she was the most redeemed of women. What we believe is that by a special gift, God gave her a prevenient grace. It means a grace that came before, borrowing from the grace of Calvary, He created the Blessed Mother in a unique situation. Now, think about it. Again, I just want to quickly summarize things I've said for a long time about about uh, about uh, the Immaculate Conception. <sighs> Most people think, well, our Blessed Mother was not the first person immaculately conceived. She was the third person. Adam and Eve were immaculately conceived, albeit in the mind of God, but they were brought into existence, the Scripture says, and we believe, without the effects of original sin. They came into the world before original sin. They did not accept their immaculate conceptions. They they did not want them. Our Blessed Mother said yes, and people think, oh, it would be great to be immaculately conceived. You wouldn't have the temptation. You would, On the contrary, she was Our Lady of Sorrows. The Immaculate Conception was a great responsibility. Most people think, and it is true, that the Lord created a perfect humanity through the Immaculate Conception of his mother. He did not receive the inheritance of sin that you and I received from Adam and Eve, our fallen first parents. I believe, however, there's an additional reason for the Immaculate Conception. The Father could have, could have just directly given Jesus that perfect nature without the participation of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Mother. However, we have a holy church. The church is holy. There are four marks of the church. One, holy, Catholic, and Apostolic. Now, I'm not so holy. I'm a member of the church, but I'm, I'm not that holy. There was a time in history when there was just one person in the church, and that was Mary, our Blessed Mother, the Princess of the House of David. She was the first to accept Christ, quite literally. She was faithful to him at the foot of the cross. She was there with the disciples on Pentecost. She was the first member of the church. And at one point, the only member of the church, if the church was going to be holy, it's one member had to be holy, that the church is sustained by the holiness of the saints. Uh, um, picture the, 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 the treasury of the merits of the saints like airtight compartments on a ship. If you got enough airtight compartments on a ship, no matter what it hits, it's not going to sink and we 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 in the church go through rough times on occasion you may have noticed well we have this this great cloud of witnesses and their lives are are well as you'd say about a movie in the can it's done it's 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 all perfected and nothing can detract from that holiness the church has some members who are not so holy like me then it has the saints who are consecrated in their holiness But when there was only one person in the church, that member was a holy church. That the church might be holy, our Blessed Mother was given a special gift. She accepted it, was faithful to it, and despite the suffering that it caused in her life, she trusted the Father. So the Immaculate Conception makes a great deal of sense. It is implied in the greeting of the angel, and she is the third person in the history of Scripture to be immaculately conceived. We always believed it. And it was just reinforced when people stopped believing it. So it's a beautiful idea. And to me, its beauty <laughs> uh, uh, underlies its truth. So I wouldn't jump ship in, in these difficult times. Uh, we need good believing Catholics. But, you know, if you jump ship and go to another denomination, where will you go when they disappoint you? Uh, so... Just a thought. All right. Let us. Well, let me look at the time. We, I think we do one more letter here. Let's see here. Um, um, Can you list some resources explaining what culture was like during the time of Jesus? And also, I think I answered this letter. I'm fascinated by cultural and language context. The best place to start for me is, uh, uh, I better look it up, uh, William Barclay's uh, Daily Bible Study Guide. It is, um, he did a masterpiece on the New Testament. And he is not Catholic. I think he was Presbyterian. Uh, um, He uh, was recommended by Fulton Sheen. Uh, um, Good recommendation. That's William Barclay, B A R. C L A Y. Now there's an Old Testament series that was written by other people to go with it, and I've never looked at that. But the the William Barclay uh, uh, Daily Bible Study Guide uh, you can get um, you can get it used, uh, and uh, it's it's not that expensive to get it used. So I would I would uh, uh, look at that again. William Barclay Daily Study Bible. Uh, I found it very useful when I was really beginning to get serious about the study of Scripture. So, that said, let us take a break. We'll come back with our word of the day. And we the phones are open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com I love coffee, I love tea I love the a job, a job and it loves me Coffee and tea and the job and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a Just cup. Just finished my coffee. Oh, well. Somehow I'll carry on bravely. All right. Where were we? Ah, the word of the day. In the gospel reading today, um, Jesus says your sins are forgiven because of your trust. And the scribes and the Pharisees said, who is this who blasphemes? Only God can forgive sins. And he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven. arise and walk. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your stretcher and go home. He stood up immediately before them, picked up what he'd been lying on and went home. Glorifying God. Astonishment seized them all and they glorified God. Astonishment. I was curious as to what the word for astonishment was. And it's a great word. It's extasis, from which we get the word ecstasy. And what it means, it means to be beside yourself, outside yourself. Stasis is uh, standing and ek is outside of. In other words, it's like we were dreaming. It's like, what? What? I mean, ecstasy is, is not this intense emotional state so much as it is a state of, uh, I would suppose, it's probably usually pretty emotional, but it's a state almost of, of dreamlike wonder. Can this be happening? Can th- Is this real? Can this be happening? I think that's kind of interesting that the exact word is ecstasis. And, uh, um, of course, in English, when you say ecstasy, we, we mean something a little different from it. But it's bewilderment. <laughs> uh, 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 a disturbance of mind caused by shock. That's ecstasy. So, there you go. Uh I think that's kind of neat. Well, let's go to phone calls. Buddy D. Elf, what's your favorite color? Well, (laughs) I don't need to know anyone's favorite color, but I would like to talk to Teresa from Oxnard, California. Teresa, what can I do for you? Yes, I was wondering, did you know my father, he was in close connection with Cardinal Francis George, and he was an uh, Anglican priest Mm -hmm. when I was a lot younger. Yeah. And he was—he became a Catholic priest later on in life, uh-huh. and his name—his name, his name uh, was Father Bern Seely. He was part of St. John, Kansas. You no, know, I—I didn't know him. That's you know the the canons regular—they're kind of a religious order, and I'm a diocesan priest. Yes. So, oh. no, I—the I, name does not ring a bell. But uh, the the guys at oh. St. John, Kansas, are wonderful. They're delightful folks. Yes, they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. really yes. something. They're, I agree. Yeah. Great fun, great fun, and just a uh-huh. normal bunch of, they just impressed me as being a great bunch of guys, so, uh, yeah, no, I wish were. I did, they I wish were. I did, I bet your dad was a great guy too, so, there you go. Yeah, he was, Seeley. wonderful. Well, I'll have to ask yeah. around. Well, nice to talk to you yeah. anyway, God bless, Teresa. You too. Thanks for God calling, uh-huh. thanks for listening. You're Let's welcome. go to Ed, Ed from Riverside, California. Hi, Father. how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. What can I do for you? Quickie question: Advent wreaths that we have in the front of the uh, church during Advent season, obviously, have the four candles surrounding them, and the yes. the one, of course, in the center. Is it standard to only have one of the outboard candles lit at any mass? Point being, oh, yeah. I, oh. uh, I thought that you know we had two lit the second week, three lit. Yeah, the Yeah, that's week, always the way I've done it. Week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I asked my priest uh, yesterday morning, and he did not have the second candle lit. And I asked him about that. And he says, No, we only light one candle at a time, but it's in order. <laughs> yeah.
1: I bet I've he's trying to save candle wax.
0: <laughs> <He's>, no, he <laughs> would like, I've always lit, lit them one after another. And, uh, you know, it makes me crazy because it's kind of neat. You get the short one, then the next one, then the next one. The well, third one is the pink one. Everyone, third one is the pink one. That's not the last one. It's the third one. And then the fourth one. And they kind of make a little ladder. And I would, and people were always lighting the wrong candle and it would make me crazy as a pastor. But now I'm not a pastor. So I'm, I'm calmer. But yeah, no, we always, we always lit, lit all of one, two, three, four. And you know, there you went. I'm on your side. (laughs) There you go. I don't know why the pastor said otherwise, but. Nah, maybe where he comes from, they just right. light one candle. It's not a major liturgical thing. So it's okay. originally, the Advent wreath is originally a Lutheran thing, but it's neat. I that's like Advent wreaths. So there you go. Well, I hope that's okay. been helpful to some degree. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. Well, All right. It makes it more understandable. Well, there you go, Ed. God bless, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Father. You too. Now we do, I think we're going to have plenty of time for calls today, so there are phones open at 888-914-9149-888, 914-9149. Let's go to Therese from uh, Monrovia, California. Are you with us, Therese? Yes, Father, I'm here. Good. What can I do for you? Uh, my question is, I have uh, been enjoying reading about typology. And I'm yes. wondering if there is a book that lists all of the areas that are of a type. Okay, that's such a such a book. Oh gosh, I've never known of one. I mean, the fathers of the church talk about it all the time, but uh, yeah. I don't know one book that includes all of the types, the different the different types. Uh, uh, the word type in in. Uh, um, it's a Greek word, typos, which means an example or a, uh, uh, that's why we use like a typewriter because there's the standard, the standard key that, that always reproduces the same thing. Um, but no, I don't, I, if, again, if any listener knows of a book on typology, that's good. Let me know and we'll, we'll pass it on. Sorry, I can't be more of help than that, Teresa okay well thank you anyways father we'll 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 keep looking and maybe we'll come up with something god bless thanks for listening let us go to leah leah from san francisco are you with us leah yes hi father simon uh, and thank you for answering my call um my question is is it possible that the dead can pray for us (laughs) <laughs> oh, I think most people, most most theologians who think about it, think yes, the souls in purgatory pray for us. I, I I've always been taught that there are some people who don't agree with that. It's not part of the deposit of faith, but but yes, um, certainly. Uh, we know that the saints before the throne of God intercede for us. Remember what St. Teresa the Little Flower said, that she wanted to spend her eternity in heaven doing good on earth. Uh, so, yes, the saints pray for us, certainly, and it is thought that the souls in purgatory can pray for us also. So uh, does that answer your question? Is there a verse in the scripture, in the Bible? Um, I have yes, a in that term. Protestant, and she asked me that question. The prayers of the saints in the book of Revelation. Uh, let me find this for you. Yeah, the book of Revelation talks about that. Okay, Revelation 8.4. Okay. Uh-huh. The smoke of incense together with the prayers of, of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Now, the saints, probably in that context, means those people who are living in the world who are members of the church. But what we believe mm-hmm. is that, that there's if you're a saint on earth and a saint in heaven, there's no distance between us. That, that uh, yeah. That's the one verse, Revelation 8, 4, the prayers of the saints uh, um, uh, went up. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So that's as close as I can come to it. Does that help? Yeah, Revelation 8-4. Nice. Thank you. There you go. 8-4. All right. Well, okay. God bless. Great. Thank you so All right. much. No, thank okay, you. Bye-bye. Okay, let's see. We've got Jean from Glendale, Wisconsin. Are you with us, Jean? What can I do for you? Father, uh, can you tell me, why did there have to be a blood sacrifice? Ah, uh, we read in the Psalms, summon to me that people who have made a covenant with me through blood. Because the Bible says that the life is in the blood. And I I think I shared last week or earlier this week, God doesn't work through contracts. He only works through covenants. A contract is I give you that you might give me. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. And the the offering of blood is symbolic of the giving of self. Okay. Okay. And so to make a covenant, to make a covenant with God, there's blood sacrifice, and now we do it with the blood of Christ at, at Mass. He calls it okay. uh, the, the chalice, the cup of, of... Thank you, Father. Good. Good. There you go, the cup of, of, of uh, the blood of the New Covenant, the the, the New Testament. There. May all your mm-hmm. questions be so simply answered. Thanks for calling <laughs> in, Gene. God bless. Okay, you're welcome. All right. you. Bye-bye. Let us now go to Angela from Cedar Park, Texas. Angela, what can I do for you? Hello, Angela? Did we lose Angela? Oh, we lost Angela. Well, call back in if you can, Angela. Let's go to Mike calling in from Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, hi, Father. We know that St. Paul said that we're no longer under the law. What would St. Paul say to Catholic requirements of go to Mass every Sunday, don't eat meat on Friday, or perform another sacrifice, and the like? Well, Saint Paul says, "Offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice." Now, the law. The law. You got to understand what he meant by the law. The law was that set of there's six hundred thirteen commandments in the Torah, in the the Hebrew scriptures, and we only obey of the commandments, 10 of them. Why? Because those 10 commandments reflect the very nature of God and they re- reflect the the goal of the nature of humanity. God is the giver of life. Thou shalt not kill. And just as I would not want to be killed, so I should not kill, etc. All of those 10 commandments reflect the nature of God and the perfection of human nature. So the 10 commandments are still with us. But 603, some of them reflected the, uh, uh the uh, Ten Commandments, those we would obey. Some of them were liturgical laws from the temple, uh, how you should conduct yourself in the temple. And then there were the chukim, which were just laws that nobody could explain, like thou shalt not mix wool and cotton in a garment. They were just laws that existed to keep the people of Israel completely separate. Those laws were about the liturgy, and they were about the... the um, uh, um, the separateness of Israel. Our regulations, for instance, not eating meat on Friday in Lent, that's a shared discipline we have um, that, that we, we do together uh, because the scripture does command us to fast uh, in the New Testament. Uh, things like Mass on Sunday, the letter of the Hebrew says, do not forsake the common assembling. So there are basic rules of conduct for life in the church. Now, if you're a Jew, uh, an Old Testament Hebrew, and you break one of those laws, there's very elaborate ways to undo it. For us, the law, those rules, let me call them rules instead of laws, those rules are much more flexible. They aren't about our salvation, but they are about our growing, our discipline, uh, and and our our growth in, in, in the Lord. If I completely disregard the the disciplines of the church, uh, that probably is an indicator that I'm in a pretty bad spiritual condition. I have a kind of arrogance that nobody can tell me what to do. Um, if, if, for instance, if I'm traveling and I can't go to mass, uh, the obligation to go to Sunday mass is lifted. There's a great deal more flexibility uh, in those laws. If I'm sick, I Don't fast. And I I can eat meat if if it's necessary for my physical condition. They aren't that absolute inflexibility of the law of Moses. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's part of the discipline that we share together as Christians. So does that answer your question at all? That helps. Thank you. God bless. Well, and thanks for listening. Let us go now to Angela from Cedar Park, Texas. You're back, Angela. What can I do for you? Uh, yes, Father. Um, I had a question about um, St. Joseph. Yes. I was, uh, yep. Yeah, um, you know how we have a uh, Mary who's assumed, and so we have no relics of her? Yeah. I just wondered, um, in thinking about uh, meditating on St. Joseph, um, do we have any Relics of him. I know. I know of any? no relics of Saint Joseph. I I know of no relics of Saint Joseph. There may be some, but I don't know of any. Uh, there's a a tomb in Jerusalem which is called Joseph's tomb, but uh, the uh, um, uh, the you know it probably is not his tomb. It wrong history period. But no, I have heard of. I've never heard of relics of Saint Joseph. If I'm wrong about that, I'd love to hear. So does that answer your question? Yeah. So, could we maybe uh, assume that he might have been assumed as well? No, no. We don't believe he was no. assumed into heaven. No. Okay. It's well, never been taught. Okay. So there you go. Okay. Oh. Uh, right. okay, maybe you. there are relics of Saint Joseph. We'll I'll I'll investigate. Well, thanks for calling in, and we'll see if we can get an answer to your question. Oh, by the way, thank I just you. got a recommendation uh, from Shadows to Reality: Studies in the Biblical Typology of the Fathers. By uh, Jean Danielou, Danielou. He was a great, a great theologian. From Shadows to Reality: Studies in Biblical Typologies by Jean Danielou. That's last name is spelled D A N I E L O U. From Shadows to Reality. Shadows Thank to you. Reality. For, uh, okay. From okay. from uh, whoever sent that in. God bless. All right. Very good. Let's go. Uh, let's go to uh, Tom. Tom, are you with us? Yes, I am, Father. Good, good, good. From Wyndham, Maine. What can I do for you, Tom? Well, Father, uh, I've tried uh, actually for about a year now, but I I couldn't get you, so thank you. Um, Adam and Eve uh, was supposed to be the start of all of us, so I'm just wondering uh, three things. How did all the different human races start, and... um, Without, you know, like incest and cousins and someone and their children, and, you know, how did the world, the human race, start with all the different races? well uh, that's an easy question there is only one race the human race you have different skin colors and different features and it is estimated it only takes twenty thousand years for skin to go from one color to another in other words everybody coming to europe maybe fifteen thousand years ago was very dark-skinned but well People with lighter skin survived better because they got more vitamin D. It only, literally only takes 20,000 years for a group of people to change their skin color. Now, very interesting. I don't know about the the, uh, intimacies of the first biblical human beings, but it is thought that human beings were descended from, I mean, just in terms of genetics. Originally, human beings were a very small group of people. Uh, and the ones who left uh, Africa and went into the rest of the world, again, a very small group of people. And so they would necessarily have have <laughs> only been able to marry close relatives. And of course, that was an exception. And it it was uh, just genetically it worked out. Now, of course, it's a great risk to, to uh, marry within the family. People still do it though. In the Middle East, cousin wedding marriages are very common and the rate of uh, birth defects is much higher because of it. Um, so, you know, they they lived a different moral life than we did. They didn't have the refined uh, awareness that we do of, of the dangers of of, of marrying a close relative but yeah the lord worked it out that's the best i can say and what we have in scripture is just what we need for for our salvation god doesn't give us more than we need doesn't give us less than we need in the holy scriptures like drew we'll give you just what you need so stay tuned